This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Our featured author this evening, Robert Carroll, has pretty much set the gold standard for writing biography. Already in his first landmark work, The Power Broker, about New York's Robert Moses, Mr. Carroll established himself 45 years ago as a master chronicler, combining painstaking historical research with a smoothly flowing narrative writing style. The same relentless approach to detail and polished skill in writing have been on display in Mr. Carroll's subsequent four epic volumes about Lyndon Johnson. For these biographies, Mr. Carroll has won two Pulitzer Prizes and two National Book Awards, including one for Lifetime Achievement, not to mention numerous other honors. Now, in his new publication titled Working, Mr. Carroll has put together a collection of of personal reflections and interviews that provide both an engaging uh, self-portrait of sorts and also a fascinating behind-the-scenes glimpse of his craft. With his typical grace, humor, and compelling prose, Mr. Carroll recalls, for instance, what it was like to interview a man as powerful as Robert Moses and how it felt to confront the vast holdings of the Lyndon Johnson Library. He details how he plans and composes his books and recounts how he decided to write not just about the pivotal individuals uh, that he's written about, but to focus also on the powerless people affected by those dominant figures. And for the many who have always wanted to know why Mr. Carroll's books take so long to write, he, um, uh, he has both a short answer, intensive research, and a longer one based on advice from a literary critic whose writing course he once took at Princeton, and you'll have to read the book to uh, hear that advice. Plus, there is this. Mr. Caro views biography not just as a means of illuminating the lives of his subjects, but the times in which they lived and the forces that shaped those times. And this takes much time-consuming research and writing. Well, I'm sure we're all eager for Mr. Caro to finish his fifth and final volume about Lyndon Johnson. His latest publication will enrich our understanding of and appreciation for Mr. Caro's life's work. A number of readers have used the term master class to describe it, and indeed it is offering revealing, inspiring lessons in researching, interviewing, and writing from one of history's best ever. Mr. Caro will be in conversation here this evening with Chuck Todd, who I'm sure is familiar to uh, many of you, if not all of you. He's the moderator of NBC's Meet the Press, host of uh, MT. P. Daily on MSNBC, and the political director for NBC News. Chuck knows a thing or two himself about how to ferret out information, so we're uh, no doubt in for a very lively discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Robert Caro and Chuck Todd.
is like interviewing Babe Ruth. I mean, you got a curtain call and you haven't said anything yet. Should we just leave right now? Um, let me just start by saying, I'm sorry we're taking you away from finishing the fifth book. All right. Let's dispense with the most annoying question. Is it, when are you finishing? Or, um, when are you finishing? Talk about, uh, you wrote in here, this memoir, you wrote in the introduction, that you had planned to do a longer memoir. But you went ahead and did this because you've had a lot of people use the phrase to you, do the math. <laughs> explain. <laughs> it's a pretty rough comment in there, explain. Well, obviously it means what it means. I'm writing a long memoir, you know, on what it was like. But I realized people... They bring the mic a little bit closer. People keep asking me, um, what it's like to do research, what it's like to work in a presidential library, what a presidential paper is like, what it's like, what can you find out from interviewing, that sort of thing. And I realized I wanted people to get at least a few glimpses into what that's like, what it's like to interview people, to find people to interview, what it's like to go through presidential papers. So I thought I'd do this short book really just to give a few glimpses into how I work. I'm just curious, explain how you prioritized doing this while you're in the midst of writing volume five. Do you, did you take a full break? Did you do it in the same day? Explain yeah. that process. Well, good, good question, you know. I, I thought of this, you know, compared to my other books, this is so short. Like my editor and I, who usually fight for months over my books, you know, we finished in two days editing this, and we both sort of looked at each other and said, is that all there is? <laughs> but, it, but it was, it didn't compare to my books. I just got the idea, I, it was last summer when I said, you know, well, if something happens to me, I don't want people to have no idea of what it's like to do research like this. So I started, I did this short book, and here it is just a few months later, and it's published. So, you started as a newspaper man. Yeah. Do you still consider yourself a newspaper man? Yeah, well, I consider myself a reporter, yeah. Where did you, who were your influences to learn your narrative style? Where did you feel like you picked up the ability to write narrative in ways that this doesn't feel like a newspaper? Well, I always, well, that's a very complimentary. Uh, <laughs> By the way, I'm pro-newspaper for, I know my buddy Bob Costas in here, he does a pretty good job. We're pro-newspaper here, but it's a different type of writing. You yourself said, you know, what did you say when you, when you let your thinking in your fingertips? A well, that, that, that was part of what had an influence on me. Uh, those of you who have read the book, for those of you who happened to test this Tuesday, <laughs> An important thing that happened to me was that I, when I was at Princeton, I, we had a creative writing teacher at the time, uh, his name was R.P. Blackmer at the time, he was a very famous critic, now he's forgotten. And I was taking a creative writing course for two years with him, so every two weeks we handed in a short story and I always got a pretty good mark. I, I thought I was fooling him because I always did things at the last minute. I would seem to remember doing, we used to call it pulling an all-nighter to get the stories in on time. But 
he always seemed to like them. And then at the last session I had in the second year, he handed back my short story and with some ni nice remark. And then as I was getting up to go and see him for the last time, he said, but you know, Mr. Carroll, you're never going to achieve what you want to achieve if you don't learn to stop thinking with your fingers. And I felt then he had seen right through me all along. And when I, so then you become a newspaper man and speed is also important. I was a very fast rewrite man, you know, I'd sit there in the day with my headsets on if there was a plane crash or something and type out one lead after another. But when I quit to do a book and I started to realize how complex political power was and the kind of power I was trying to explain, I said, I remembered him. And I said, I have to slow myself down. And I think my writing changed then. All right, let's go through your process. I want to start a little bit with, let's start with um, whether, do you have to like the subject you write about? And I ask this, ask Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's written about, she writes about four presidents very frequently. Um, Johnson's one of them, Kennedy, uh, excuse me, Johnson, the Roosevelt's, both Teddy and FDR, and Lincoln. And she said she could not write about any of them if she didn't like them. Well, I don't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> She did say she admires people that have the ability to write about people that are not so likable. Well, to me, I'm more interested in writing about people through whose lives I can show. You see, I don't think of my books, as I said, as biographies. I never had the faintest interest in writing a book just to tell the life of a famous man. What I was interested in was political power. That's why I quit as a reporter, because I realized here was this man, Robert Moses, you know, we all believe in the democracy, and certainly I believe, you know, that power comes from the ballot box, from being elected, from our votes. Here was a man who was never elected to anything. He had more power than anyone who was elected, more power than any mayor, more power than any governor, more power than any mayor and governor combined. And he held this power for 44 years, and with it he shaped New York. You know, if you drive on a highway in New York, a parkway, and it has the word parkway or expressway in the title, every one of them was built by one man. He built 672 miles of road, among other things. So I said, I don't understand where he gets this power, and neither does anybody else. So that's what started. Well, no, you, you recount a story that you thought you had, you were covering a story in Newsday yeah. in Albany, and you, you thought, Oh, I thought I just, I thought I got rid of that bridge. Yeah. It was you versus Robert Moses in some ways. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> I'll tell you. Yeah. So, so. so I was, a, indeed, a, Robert Moses wanted to build a bridge between, of course, Long Island Sound, between Rye in uh, Westchester County and Oyster Bay on Long Island. So he already built the, the Triborough Bridge, the Bronx Whitestone Bridge, and the Throgsneck Bridge. If he had, and now he wanted to build this other bridge. And Newsday assigned me, I was a young reporter then, to look into this. And I found that this was a really terrible idea. It would have generated so much traffic. Just the Long Island Expressway would have had to have 12 more lanes just to, to handle the cars the bridge would bring down through New England. And the bridge itself would have had to be so big that the piers would have caused, the, the, 
the structures that a bridge stands on, would have had to be so big that it would cause pollution in Long Island Sound. So I wrote a series on this, and Newsday sent me to Albany, and I spoke to the governor, who was Nelson Rockefeller. I spoke to his council, spoke to the assembly speaker, president of the state senate, and everybody seemed to understand it was the world's worst idea. So I wrote a story like that, and I went back to doing something else, and about two weeks later, I had a friend in Albany then, and he called me and he said, Bob, I think you better come back up here. Robert Moses was here yesterday. And I said something like, oh, I think I've taken care of that bridge. <laughs> and I came, went back up, and I saw the governor, and I saw the governor's council, and the assembly speaker, etc. And they all now thought this was the world's greatest idea. And in fact, the state was going to pay for the initial, uh, to get it started. So all the way back to Long Island, driving back to my house in Long Island that night, I remember it was a night in my life. I said, you know, everything you've been doing is sort of baloney. Because everything you've been doing sort of rests on the belief that power comes from being elected. And here's... And, Here's this guy who has this other power, and as I said, neither I nor anyone else knew where he got it from. Do you, do you think he was, how much was Moses unique? How much was this, is he a product of the power he was handed? Did he just know how to take it? Or, or was this just an opportunity that just was sitting there? No, Moses was unique. I mean, uh, unique in the sense he was a non-elected official who shaped the greatest city in America and, and uh, did it without being elected. And he did it. Moses was, you know, when you talked the, on, during the, few, the short period of time in which he was actually talking to me, I would sit there listening to him and all I wanted to do was listen. I was like he taught me something with every paragraph that he said, that I had no idea how things worked. He was a political genius. He thought he was going to be governor of New York State. So he had his own political ambition? Oh, yes. Well, his ambition was to build, to build bridges, to build public work. But he thought he was going to do that by being elected. So he ran for governor in 1934, and people got a look at him. He was quite frightening and intimidating in person. And he lost by what is to this day still the largest majority that anybody ever lost in New York State. So then he tries to be mayor of New York, but he's not going to be mayor either. So he sits down with a yellow legal pair, and he thinks of the public authority, and he writes this legislation that nobody understands what's in it. And everybody thinks public authority before had just been things like they, they uh, sold bonds to build a bridge or a tunnel. They collected tolls until the bonds were paid off, and then they went out of existence. He writes legislation establishing a his own authorities, which seem to say the exact same thing, except concealed in there, and no one understands this. No one in the legislature knows what they're passing is something that says they don't ever have to go out of existence, and as long as he's in charge of it, no one can ever take the power away from him. Um, Forty years later, do you see Moses any differently than you did when you wrote the book? Uh, oh. 
<laughs> you see him worse. Do you think you were too... Li Do you look at it and say, I, I should have been tougher? No, because he did... I think the book shows... You know, a lot of the things that he did when he was young are magnificent. Like Joan's speech. When he, he used to talk to me about how he dreamed of Joan's speech and the whole Long Island State Park system. And you just felt this was a young, idealistic guy who has this unbelievable... You know, to see Moses in each of his offices, he's had 12 offices, right? In each of them, there was an immense map of New York City and the suburbs around it. And when he would get up, he was like a kid. He was like 78, I think, when I was interviewing him. He, he'd say, can't you see? He'd jump up and he'd wave the screen. He'd say, we'll build the highway over here, and then the parks can go here, or we'll have housing here. He was like a genius doing this. And I said, when I was writing The Power Broker, if I want to be fair to him, I have to show this genius, as well as the ruthlessness. Would the city be what it is today without him? No, it would be a different city. Is that a good or a bad thing, or just different? Well, just different. Uh, I mean, you can't really say uh, if it would be better or worse, but it would be a completely different city. Given, your, given Moses and what you went through there, it now makes a ton of sense to me why you picked LBJ. Because in some ways, LBJ figured out how to find power where it didn't exist. Yes, yes. I, the thing that attracted me, see, I didn't, you know, you make it sound like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> hey man, we've got to assume somebody does. Because <laughs> we don't know who to look to anymore here in this town. But anyway. Thank you. You're you're very nice. But you learn as you go along. And as I'm writing The Power Broker, I'm realizing more and more that what I'm writing really isn't the story of one man. It's about urban political power, power in cities. So I knew, well, see, we were broke most of the time we were doing this book. I never thought I'd get to write. I didn't, for a long time, I didn't think I'd ever get to write another book. I said, boy, if I ever could, I'd like to do national political power. And I knew, just as you say, Lyndon Johnson. And the thing that got me about Johnson, see, you have to pick someone who does something that nobody else has did but done before, because then if you can figure out how he did it and explain it, you'll really be saying something about how political power works. The thing that got me about Lyndon Johnson wasn't his presidency at first. It was when he was Senate Majority Leader. You know, for a hundred years, he becomes Majority Leader in January 1955. For a hundred years, since the days of Webster Clay and Calhoun in the 1850s, the Senate was basically the same dysfunctional mess that it is today. Johnson becomes Majority Leader for six years. The Senate works. It's not, it, it creates its own bills. It's not Eisenhower's Civil Rights Bill. It's Lyndon Johnson's Civil Rights Bill. He leaves to become Kennedy's Vice President. And in an instant, the Senate reverts to what it had been before and has pretty much stayed the same to this day. So he, if I said, if I could figure out how he made the Senate work, I would be I would be contributing something. But didn't he do it the old, sort of the old-fashioned way, which is just paying, you know, doing it the transactional way? Uh, well, not, not, not entirely at all. He found power in devices like the unanimous consent decree, which nobody paid attention to. 
he realized there was a way he could use that to have real power. The seniority system was sacred in Washington, you know. Johnson becomes majority leader and almost in the instant, because the giving out the first thing he has to do is give out committee assignments. He realizes, or he realized before, and now he can do it, if I don't go by seniority, then I have the power, because I'm the one who decides who going to He does that in a dozen ways. When you look at, let me ask you this, what would LBJ have thought of Mitch McConnell's decision to hold a Supreme Court seat for a year? I'm sorry? What would LBJ have thought of Mitch McConnell's decision to essentially hold a Supreme Court seat hostage? Well, I don't think uh, that never really happened, so I can't really say. But would he, have, would he have been impressed with McConnell's ability to use his power and be unafraid of it, or no, would he I, have been... I, I think underlying everything that Johnson did was um, a huge purpose, you know. Um, you see the purpose as soon as he becomes president. I mean, in the first few months after he after the assassination. You know, he's got it all figured out. I don't know, four days after the uh, assassination, he has to address a joint session of Congress. He's not even in the Oval Office yet. So he's still in his private home, and downstairs in the kitchen, three or four of his speechwriters are gathered around the kitchen table writing a speech. So after a while, Johnson comes down and asks what they've got, and he says, well, the only thing we we are agreed on it, you mustn't make civil rights a priority. Don't try to make civil rights an emphasis in your speech, because if you do, the Southerners who control Congress then will do the same thing to you. You know, in that year, there were 16 great standing committees in the Senate. 11 were chaired by Southerners or their, or their, or their allies. They say they'll stop your whole program just like they stopped Kennedy's program. Johnson says, they say it's a noble cause, but it's a lost cause. Don't fight for it. Johnson says, well, what the hell is the presidency for then? And in his speech, he says, our first priority must be to pass John F. Kennedy's civil rights bill. And you know, you see in the newsreel, all the Southerners are sitting in an ark right in this front row there, looking down at this man that they raised the power when he says that. When, um, when you've been researching, and I want to get into your research techniques of Johnson, when do you stop? Or have you stopped finding new information? You're working on the fifth book. Are you done with all the research and now it's, <laughs> it's about, all right, I've got this chapter here and I've got to work on this outline, I've got this chapter here. Or are you still going and getting information? Are you still going to Austin? Well, the, the answer to the first part of your question is, I'm always finding something new. I just found something new. <laughs> Actually, Johnson also did things you, you, you really don't believe are possible until he does, he does them. Um, I've heard I, stories, and I don't know if they're believable. I, you're the only person I would assume would know yes or no. But every, it, it seems like there's... There's always a story that's crasser than the next with LBJ. Well, he, he was a pretty crude person, a crass person. Of course, he always, you know, we, it's very complicated. 
to do, do his life, particularly this book, because on the one side, and I'm just doing this now, he passes Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, the Civil Rights Bill, the Voting Rights Bill, War on Poverty, etc., which has changed America. On the other side is Vietnam, you know. Um, so you say, this is the same man. This is a very tough man to describe and try to sum up. You didn't even get to the personal characteristics, because oh. he was also a man of large appetites. Yes, he was a man <laughs> of large appetites. Uh, I'm curious, have family members of LBJ come up to you and say, you know more about my dad than, or my grandfather or my uncle than I do, can you tell me <laughs> stories? And Is that uncomfortable? Um, well, I don't know that many of them say that, actually. Uh, his brother, you know, you uh, learned a lot. Uh, I think I learned, you know, I have to say, the Johnson family, now the daughters, don't like my books, you know, at all. Uh, but various members of the family, most notably his brother, really helped me understand him in a way I couldn't have without their cooperation. Um, does that bother you that, they, that his daughters don't like the books, or do you just chalk that up to, it's their dad, they can't read a critical thing? Well, you know, to tell the truth, if I had two daughters and someone was doing a biography of me, and it contained negative information, no matter how much positive information, I would be pretty happy if they didn't like the biography. <laughs> I mean, you could make the case that, you know, his the 50th anniversary of, essentially, over the last few years, we've had the 50th anniversary of, of this massive amount of change that he instituted from 64 to, to 68. Um, and I would argue that you, you elevated this in a way that you would think they would be a bit more appreciative, that's all. Well, maybe I could feel the same way you do, <laughs> but I think I understand the other way. When you're, when you're in the midst of, you said you didn't, there's 32 million pieces of paper? Well, there were, then there are 45. 45 million pieces of paper. <laughs> you have 40 million of the 45 million pieces of paper in your, in your apartment? <laughs> yeah, right? yes. No. Um, <laughs> What haven't you seen? You obviously there's stuff you've chosen not. You, you've had to make the choice. I can't do everything, yeah. even though I think we think you are doing everything. No. Um, how do you make that choice? What's the toughest thing you've left out? Oh, I don't know what the tough. I, I would say what you the, the first part of what you said is so right. You know, when you first look, go down to that library, then there were 32 million pieces. You say, oh, God, I can only look at a tiny fraction of this. But you pick on, like, I'll tell you how I found, pick one thing. If you look at Johnson's life, when you just started, and when I was just starting my research, so you're just going through his papers, I said, one of the things I want to look at is what it was like when he was a young congressman. He comes in 1937, he's 29 years old. I want to be able to paint the picture of what the life of a young congressman mm -hmm. was like. So I'm going to do the papers for those years. And this, when you start doing it, you see, oh, there was this change. 
before, and it all happens in one month, just before October 1940. He's writing to senior congressmen in the tone, can I have five minutes of your time? Then all of a sudden, and, the, and it's, it's right in October 1940, before election day, November 5th, 1940. After November 5th, they're writing him, Lyndon, can I have a few minutes of your time? You say, so what happened then? So at that time, I was spending a lot of time with an old Washington wheeler dealer named Tommy Cork, Tommy the Cork Cork, and he used to call me kid. And I said, yeah, I, and I said, you know, what, I asked him what happened in that month. And he said, oh, I remember, he said, oh, money, kid, money. But he said, you'll never get to write about that kid. And I said, why not? And he said, because Lyndon never put anything in writing. But in fact, I said, well, I'm going to look at all his papers for that period. And sure enough, he did put something. You're just sitting there, you know, saying, you're turning, you know, pages, one letter or memo after another, and saying, here I go, wasting another six weeks of my life here, you know. And then all of a sudden, there is a telegram from George Brown of Brown and Root, the Texas firm that really bankrolled him, saying, Lyndon, it's dated October 19, 1940, and it says, Lyndon, the checks are on the way. And he names the six people who are sending $30,000 each, so I could cross-reference into their files and see what they were doing. And then I keep turning papers in those boxes, and there is, in fact, Lyndon Johnson did once, put, at least once, put something in writing. You know, you're a reporter. It's, it's like six type sheets of paper, and it's really unique. There are two type columns. I think John Connolly typed it, but I'm not sure. He said he typed it, but another secretary, Walter Jenkins, said he typed it. But in the left-hand column is the name of the congressmen who are asking for money. In the next center column typed in is how much they're asking for, and the amounts are so small compared to today. You know, Lyndon need $450 for a round of last-minute advertising. Lyndon, if I have, can have $700, I can hire the poll watcher. But in the left-hand margin, next to each congressman's name, in Lyndon Johnson's handwriting, is a little notation. So, so if he was giving the guy all the money he asked for, he wrote, okay. If he was giving them part of the money he was asking for, he would go, okay, 300 or okay, 500. But sometimes he wrote none. And sometimes he wrote none out. And I asked John Connolly, what did none out mean? And I can still remember Connolly's tone when he said to me, that guy was never going to get money from Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson never forgot and he never forgave. So you say, in that, what, what were these two pieces of paper proven? Lyndon Johnson was a political genius. He has no power, but he realizes he has something that no one else in, tech, in Congress has. He is the only person in the House of Representatives who knows two groups of people. The Congress, the liberal congressmen from the North and the Northeast who need campaign contributions, and the big Texas oil men and contractors who want federal contracts and favors and were willing to give money, campaign contributions, to get it. He persuades them to give money only through him. 
and all of a sudden, he has his first toehold on national power. How'd you solve the crime in 1948? I'm sorry? How'd you solve the 1948 election crime? How did you confirm it? Well, I found the guy who actually did. That was, I mean, people ask why my books take so long. <laughs> I have to say, this is an example of it. Um, I'm doing this election, and there have been all these biographies of Lyndon Johnson, as you know. And they all said, sort of, no one will ever know if he stole it or not, you know. It was always out there. It was in the ether. It was a mythology. Yes, because six days after the election, he's still behind. And suddenly, they find, find is in quotation marks, a ballot box from Precinct 13, Box 13, that contains 202 votes, 200 of them or for Lyndon Johnson. And the interesting thing is, they're all cast by people in the same handwriting and in the same ink, okay? And I, there were, so the election judge was a Mexican, not really a Mexican American, but a Mexican who worked for this notorious boss down in the Rio Grande Valley. His name was Luis Salas. I remember thinking, I'm, I'll tell you the truth, I'm not ever going to write this book and say no one will ever know if he stole it unless I find the guy, try to do everything I can to find out if he stole it. So I finally found Louis Sellers. That, took, that wasn't easy because he, he had murdered a man and he went back to Mexico and he had moved around a lot. And I found him finally <laughs> back in Texas. He was living in a trailer in the backyard of his daughter in Houston. So this guy, when he was, you know, he was the enforcer for this dude. He was six foot one, weighed about 220 pounds. He carried a Colt revolver with a uh, barrel that was so long that it reached almost to his knee. So I wasn't going to give him a chance to say he didn't want to talk to me, so I just went to Houston and knocked on the door of the trailer. And I think when the door opens, I'm going to be looking up at this guy, and I'm looking down at this frail little old man, because he was then 84. But as soon as I started touring, I said, my name is Bob Tiro. I said, and I'm writing a, I said, a book about Lyndon Johnson. And he said, oh, then you want to know about Box 13. <laughs> And then he said, you know, I have written it all down. And he goes over to this trunk, and he takes out this manuscript, which he wrote. His English wasn't good, but it's, not, it's a fascinating story of how he stole, how he supervised the stealing of the 200 folks at the end. So I had the story. And uh, when you have that, you can put everything together with it. The the part of this is is how did how did Stevenson let this happen to himself? How did he have his own version of a of of, of power to try to stop it? Well, I think you know people like to say that Lyndon Johnson was just following the rough and tumble you know of Texas politics, but he took it further than anyone had ever done before in this election. I'm not sure anyone really expected that six days later 
something so open, you know, so so brazen, blatant, so blatant and brazen. That's the brazen is the right word. I I don't think anyone expected some, that something so brazen could happen. When you um, how do you vacation from LBJ? <laughs> it's been your full-time job for almost 50 years, right? Well, you know, my wife writes books on France. She's written two wonderful books on France. When I finish a long section, I don't take days off because it's too hard to start up again. You know, if you take sick, people say, why don't you take the weekend off? But you can't, I can't take Saturday and Sunday off and then go back to work. Do you write every day? What? You write every day? Every day. Yes, I write every day while I'm writing something. But then I'm entitled to long vacations. So we go to France and uh, we can go to France. But, but if you're not writing, um, Ina's writing. Well, I'm, yes, and I'm carrying her books around France. <laughs> what do you, who's doing, what is a presidential biography you've enjoyed reading recently? Well, recently I haven't been reading any presidential biographies, because I've been reading about Vietnam, actually. So you're still researching Vietnam? Well, yes, in a way, yes. Have you gone? I'm sorry. Did you go? Not yet. No. Do you plan on going? Yes. And how much how much time do you plan on spending in Vietnam? Well, I don't know. You never know until until you get there. Like we moved to the Texas Hill Country. You know, we had to spend three years there before I felt that. This goes back to this decision to you're not just writing about the person; you're writing about the lives they impacted. This goes back to Moses. Yes. When you came up with the one mile concept, explain. Oh, exactly. Well, you ask good questions. <laughs> so I was right, you know, as I said, you learn as you go along. So I'm writing about um, Moses, and, um, well, actually, it starts Preston. We're a chain. So. He built a, a road called the Northern State Parkway it was, uh, in 1929 and 30. And I found the original maps of his uh, parkway. It's supposed to be sort of a straight line through the northern parts of Long Island, the most beautiful parts of Long Island. But the Northern State Parkway does not, in fact, run that way. In two different places, it suddenly loops goes south for about three miles and then comes back up to the original route. And I, I was trying to find out why the parkway dipped like that. And I found that for the second dip, I just do that one, there was a robber baron, a very wealthy man named Otto Kahn. And the original route would have run through his private golf course in, in near Huntington. So he, it wasn't a, it wasn't a for himself, Moses, he personally didn't care about money. But uh, the legislature had stopped the parkway because they wouldn't give him money for surveys. Otto Kahn said, I'll give you $10,000 for surveys if the surveys found the route south of my estate. But because it runs south of his estate, when you look at the map, it runs through the 23, you know, on the big estates, they, they all have the name, you know, uh, Stimson, J.P. Morgan, you know, there are 23 tiny little dots. And for some reason, which I don't to this day fully understand, I said, Ina, let's find some of those 
little dots, which were little thorns, and see if there's anything to tell. And the way my books changed, the thing that changed my book, was when I found a guy named, a kid named Jimmy Roth and his mother, because they had one of these 23 farms. And Jimmy told me how, when he was a little boy, it was very bad land because it was uh, tree-filled and rock-filled, and his father and mother spent years getting the tree stumps out and the rocks out. And he, when he was five and six years old, would sit on the, um, in the, on the, on the wagon behind the horses holding the reins, and he'd watch his father and mother because they, the two horses couldn't get all the rocks out in harness with the horses and the mules to pull at this. Then he said, when we got the, he said, they got the farm cleared, they were starting to, to have a, pro, a prosperous life, and all of a sudden the representative of Robert Moses shows up and says, we're taking 400 feet from the middle of your, of your farm. And Jimmy Roth remembered and said to me, I remember my father pleading with this man saying, if you'll just move it a quarter of a mile south, you'll be in the bad part of the farm and we can still live here. If you do this, we'll be ruined. And Moses explained, no, no, the route is due to engineering considerations. It can't possibly be changed. So I remember thinking, I'm not going to tell this. The story of the Northern State Parkway isn't only the story of Robert Moses. It's the story of these people whose lives they ruined. And I said, what about the highways that he built through New York City? You know, he, he really destroyed, I think I, I, I keep wanting to look back, and I think I found 21 communities, neighborhoods, who's, who were really ruined by his expressways. I said, I'm not going to write the book without telling the story of these people. There are supposedly 500,000 words about Robert Moses that are unpublished. 350,000. Excuse me, 350,000 <laughs> words. So about 600 pages. There's a whole bunch of people here that would buy the ebook right now for volume two. Um, and what is it that's left out? What, it, what, what is it in here that you think, boy, this would be something I would enjoy sharing? Well, you know, so much, we had to cut so much out of the book. The book, as you read it, is 700,000 words, but the manuscript I handed in was a million fifty thousand. So at that time, they didn't have what they have now, a better kind of binding or perfect binding. So the power broker, as you see it, which is 1,368 pages, is the maximum number of pages you could fit. So we had to cut it. <laughs> we, and so at the very end, we wound up cutting things that I've always regretted. I mean, one thing, I did a whole chapter on why the city was creating a new charter, and Moses uh, and the mayor at that time, Fiorello LaGuardia, worked together to ensure that the city planning commission wouldn't in fact have power although the Charter ostensibly gave them power over public work. And every time I'm talking to classes and someone said, you know, why doesn't, somebody asked me, well, why doesn't the City Planning Commission have power? 
I want to tell you, it hurts. Because <laughs> you're like, I have it. I have yeah. the answer. I wrote it. It's, <laughs> it's chapter X, right? Yeah. Um, I want to let people start lining up to the microphones if you've got questions for Mr. Carroll. So, Bob, there's, a, there's some young writers in here. Um, I, myself, I'm a, a, we're, all, we're all trying to learn from you. Your basic advice to somebody trying to write about the life of a, of a, of a politician is what? Oh, I don't, I don't know that I have uh, any basic advice. Uh, you just wrote a whole book of it in here. You, don't, you may not realize it. I mean, it seems like it's read everything you can. Um, well, I think, I think political power is something worth writing about because we live in a democracy. Uh, although Robert Moses managed to pervert this, basically power comes, in most cases, from our votes. So the more we know about political power, the, the better informed our votes should be, theoretically, and then how better our democracy should be. So I think I would like to encourage all the writing about political power that I can. All right, let's start taking some questions here. I'll try to alternate, so go ahead. I uh, was uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, and I live in Queens now. Um, uh, my wife and I were out of town last month when you were doing New York City, so I took the bus down today, and I'm taking it back up tonight. Uh, so I want to thank you uh, for enriching my understanding of my hometown. And my question is about Ina. And in your book, you talk about your influences, uh, working at Newsday and the investigative journalist that told you to read every page. Um, what about Ina? What were, what was, what's her background, and how did she get to be such an integral part of your, of your books? Well, Ina in her high school yearbook said that her ambition was to be a historical researcher. So, um, <laughs> is that right? Should we fact check you on that? <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. But, you know, when she started doing, you know, if you look at other biographies, it's, you might see they name three or four, they have a team of researchers. Uh, I've never been able to trust anybody, but I, but I trust Einer as a researcher, and that's why she's part of the books. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, sir. First of all, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, you, I'm sure encounter everywhere, there's a lot of people who are very thankful for the work you do. Uh, it's an honor to speak with you. Uh, my question is, I came into politics in the era of Barack Obama, and he was someone I uh, came to because I believe that he represented not only somebody fighting for what I believed in, but also doing it in a, in a high-minded way and setting a bar of going high or, or being a good person. On the other hand, I'm thankful that the America I live in is one that benefited from all the things that Lyndon Johnson did, who, after reading all of your books on him, seems to be a terrible person, uh, or at least that's part of my view of him. Uh, and my question to you is, do you think, ultimately, character matters? Is it more important to have a leader who gets it done as effectively as Johnson, or is it equally important or, or important at all for them to be a good person uh, in terms of what they're going for, if their ends are good? I love this question, because it was among, I was, character count. Well, I, I don't necessarily think that Lyndon Johnson was all terrible. He was, a, it certainly is my book show, he was a ruthless person. Uh, but there was a strain of compassion in Lyndon Johnson from the time he was very young. You know, people say, I usually, how do you know 
his champion of the civil rights bill was genuine? Was it just politically uh, good for him? But I learned when he was 20 and 21 years old, he's in college, he doesn't have enough money to go on, he has to drop out for a year. What he does for that year is teach in what they call the Mexican school, that was down in Catula, Texas, a little town. And his stu after reading the stuff that his students there said, I wrote, no teacher had ever cared if these kids learned or not. This teacher cared. And you know, the night before he's going to give the 1965, uh, excuse me, I don't know if it was the night before, but just before he gives his it's great 1965 speech when he says, it's not just Negroes who must overcome, it's all of us and we shall overcome. Richard Goodwin, his chief speechwriter, says, basically what we're talking about here, do you really believe this? And Johnson says to him, you know, when I was teaching those kids, I swore that if I ever had the power to help them, I'd use it. He says, and now I have the power and I mean to use it. So there are a lot of different sides to Lyndon Johnson. Let so me I, ask the flip side of his question. Yes. How do you get it? Did a Barack Obama not know how to use power? I, I'm sorry? Did a Barack Obama not know how to use power enough? I think there, you, you would say he attempted to be too high-minded about it? Well, I, I wouldn't say that because I'm not, a, you know, I've been so buried in my own. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. I think I know where he's coming from on that one, though, put it that way. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Caro, I have read and loved everything you've written, um, and I encourage you to finish your next book. <laughs> uh, you, you have talked a lot about power, and you were quoted recently saying, power reveals. What does that mean exactly? Well, I said it in the context of, you know, we're all taught in high school and college, Lord Acton's axiom, all power corrupts, you know, but I haven't found that. I think that power doesn't always corrupt, it can cleanse, as in, uh, if you look at my book, Sam Rayburn, for example. Uh, what power always does, in my opinion, is reveal, because when, you, when you're climbing trying to get power, you may have to conceal what you really like, what you really want to do. But when you get power and you can do things, then you see what the person wanted to do all along. That's what I mean by power reveals. And that was then your reference to Johnson as a young man teaching Mexicans. Well, that's a, that's a real example of it. Yes, that, that's a perfect example. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Mr. Caro, I, I was born in Queens, by the way. <laughs> we met a few years ago at the Diane Rehm Show, so it's nice to see you again. I'm curious as to, given the reservoir of scholarship that exists already on Vietnam and how much we know, already know about Johnson's decision-making in Vietnam, what new ground and new information you hope to divulge to your readers? Are you getting closer to solving the mystery of why Johnson got us into Vietnam when he famously told Richard Russell, there ain't no daylight in Vietnam? What are you learning that hasn't already been covered? Well, I, 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 you say we know quite a bit about decision-making leading up to Vietnam. I'm not sure that you're right there, sir. I, I would say that uh, thanks to the telephone tape, well, I, I would say 
I don't think we have a clear picture. One of the things I'm trying to do in this book, if I can do it, it'll be, you know, let's see if I can do it, uh, is to show how America got into this mess. What series of decisions, how did, how were these decisions made? Um, I think it's, it's, it's a story that I'm not sure has been fully told. Well, I can't wait to uh, read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to write it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you enjoy torturing us. Uh, yes, sir. I want to thank you both for being here. Uh, Mr. Todd, one of the first things I watched growing up was you on election screens looking like a wizard. It's part of the reason I became a political science major. And Mr. Caro, I get my history major from my dad who gets his history um, kind of passion from you in reading his books. Um, so as someone, I just got my history degree last year and I've become really intrigued by the power like you've been describing. Which certain political players, either nationally or locally or regionally today, would you say most embody the ones that you studied or you would want to write if you were 50 years younger? Who would I like to write about today? Who would you be writing about today? That's such a, such a good question. I don't, I don't know. I, you know I'd, like to, I'd like to find someone whose life would explain uh, stuff about politics, about political power and how it works. I'm not sure I know the answer to your question off the top of my head. I haven't thought about it. Well, I have thought about it, but I haven't figured out another topic. I heard, I heard one interview, you'd said, if you'd had the time, you'd have done Al Smith. Yes, well, that's the book. You know, you all, we all have like Al Smith, fascinating person. Goes back to some of these other questions, power reveals, because Al Smith was the governor, he was the first Irish Catholic become uh, governor of a major state, in the, and he was a Tammany henchman, the most ruthless of the Tammany henchmen, guy with gold, gold teeth and drank a lot, and he was um, crude also. But when he becomes... But we always wear white tie for his dinner. I don't understand. <laughs> but when he becomes governor, he goes to the Tammany bosses and said, now you have to free me. Our people, the poor Irish, they need things, and he passed so much social welfare legislation. You know, uh, widows, pensions, disability, workers' compensation. That's all done first by Al Smith, and it's ramming through it through a Republican legislature. Um, so you really say that's a real that's someone I've always wanted to write about. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you to both of you for being here today. Um, Mr. Caro, um, I have had a lot, I have had a deep interest in presidential history for many years. In fact, I began reading your books when I was in elementary school. Um, one thing that I find particularly interesting is Johnson's relationship with Abe Fortas, and especially, and especially, the, and, and especially the dynamics involving Johnson's appointment of Fortas to the Supreme Court. Um, I have the sense that you haven't quite gotten to that yet in your in your books, but, but I, I have a feeling that that's probably in the fifth book. But my but my question is, throughout your research, what did you find most interesting about? Was there anything in particular? Was there anything particularly that you found to be particularly interesting about the relationship with Johnson and Fortas? Perhaps focusing on the 1948. 
Senate race that you found to be particularly important? Well, in the books that I've written so far, I talk about how when he comes to Washington as a young congressman, uh, some actually it's George Brown, Brown Brown says, find a good lawyer up there. And he finds a Portis. And I did write about the two of them sort of finding each other. And then, of course, in 1948, in the stolen election, there was, in fact, a court hearing. And it's going on in a way that if it had continued, we would all have known the answer to how the election was stolen before, actually, I, I found it, we wrote about it. We would have known about it at the time. And there's only one, Johnson realizes he's in trouble. And what he says is, get me aid. And he's, I spoke to another, the other lawyers. Johnson had, I think, 13 lawyers in this room. And all of a sudden, Fortis walks, comes down from Washington. I have a detail one here. It's been a long time since I wrote that book. But and all of a sudden, Fortis walks in and asks, where do we stand? And when he finished, when someone lays it all out for him, Fortis says, oh, but we, and he writes out this petition to the uh, Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black on a single sheet of paper. And one of the other lawyers says to me, a guy named Luther Jones, says to me, that's the difference between a great lawyer and a good lawyer. We were all good lawyers, but he was a great lawyer. And he has the legal maneuver that stops uh, Louis Salas uh, from, testifying. Testifying. from testifying. Wow. So in the last book, which I, you're right, I haven't written it yet. I'm not up to it yet. Johnson wants to appoint Fortas to this uh, as Chief Justice. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> we'll see if he gets there. Yeah. yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Hi. Um, first, I want to say thank you so much for all that I have learned. Um, I started reading your books as a college student and I'm still working on the passage of power. Um, if she's the only researcher that you work with, why hasn't Einar received more formal credit in the years of Lyndon Johnson? I don't know what you mean by more. I, I, I say in the books, Anya doesn't do any of the writing of the books, as she would say if she was here. Books are something that are written. Uh, I have said in every conceivable form, I think if you look in the back of the books, that I've, I've laid out the research that she's done. Uh, and that's, uh, I don't have part of a byline on her books because she writes her books, although I may help her with the research. Uh, that's not the only answer I can give. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, first off, thank you for your gift to society. And in this age of truth, um, you are the go-to guy, as far as I care. Um, if Lyndon Johnson is standing here in front of you right now, what would be a question that you would ask him that's always been on the back of your mind, that if you ever had the chance to interview him, you just wish you could say, what were you thinking then, or why did you do this? I get asked that a lot, and I have to say what I'm saying to you. I don't know that there's one question. <laughs> I'd really like to know how, when he gets to the Senate, I write about this, but I'm, I really would have been able to write it better if I could ask him some questions. How, when he gets to the Senate, he said everybody else thinks it's a place where you have to wait years to advanced then, seniority means everything. He gets, he wins this election, and he walks over to the Senate chamber for the first time as a senator. He looks around and says to Walter Jenkins, 
who was with him just the right size. And I'd really like to know exactly what was going through his mind. Thanks. Hi, uh, Mr. Carroll, my uh, father. By the way, this is the second to last okay. question. Sorry, we had, I was just given the high sign, so one and two. No problem. Uh, my father uh, introduced me to your books, uh, your initial volume on uh, President Johnson when I was a freshman at the University of Missouri in 1984. And he raved about it and raved about it, and I've been a fan ever since. And he passed away a few years ago. And, um, and your books now, I, when I read them, I feel a little bit of a bond to him. And so, in my opinion, you're an American treasure. So I want to thank you for all that you've done. And, um, and along those lines, um, have you been, I know there's uh, Johnson has been portrayed in films, theater, all kinds of uh, mass media. Have you been approached at all by like an HBO or a Netflix to do a mini series on has, the books? And what would you think about that? Because I think it'd be fascinating. You know, in this day and age now where we're all learning, you know, I say that God bless the millennials, they learn visually. Yay. Um, <laughs> have you been approached by an HBO or Netflix to say, we want to take your books and make it into this super mini series on the life and times of LBJ? Yes, I, 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 those books have mostly been un, under option for years, um, but no one's ever made them. <laughs> well, where are you, Hulu? Um, let's go. I hear you. Right? I, hear I think you. we have a whole bunch of people that are ready to go. Ready to listen. Yes, ma'am, you get the last question. I'm so lucky. Um, I wanted to tell you, Mr. Carroll, your books have changed my life. They've changed how I look at the world. It's just been a very profound um, experience to discover your work. And what what's changed for me is the idea of looking at the world through power relationships. Because you talk about investigating political power, but what I've found is I've Look, read your books is all the relationships and all the little incremental ways that power affects life and daily life. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about all the components that go into um, changing changing power. About how or, or how it affects everybody. So how what why I write. Well, you know, I, that, I sort of. Uh, that's what I'm trying to thank you for asking that. That's really what my books try to show. The effects of political power on people's lives, both for good and for ill. You can have it that it ruined people's lives, like say, on a small individual way, that, that farm family, the Roth, or a whole neighborhood like East Tremont in the Bronx, where by the Crossbox Expressway he dispossessed 15,000 people and scattered them to the winds. They happened to be mostly Jewish. It's like a edict from the Tsar, you know, saying in Fiddler on the Roof, you, you have to all leave your village. Or you can say it's like Lyndon Johnson saying uh, to Martin Luther King, if we can just give them the vote, they can do a lot of the rest themselves. So you say, Political power affects everybody's, all of our lives, in my opinion, in ways that we don't really think about, uh, both on the, hopefully for the better, sometimes often for the worse, but until we understand how political power works, it's harder to go, to go about fixing it.
Thank you. Well, look, I... I have to say, I, I just sort of pinched myself uh, the last couple of weeks when, when I got the invite to do this. So this has been... Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.